Hello, welcome to Don't Call Me Exotic. I'm O Annie O. I'm a DJ radio presenter and promoter. This is the podcast where I invite people in the creative field to come talk to me about diversity, culture, personal experiences of racism, both in life and in their careers. I'd like to welcome my next guest, the founder of both Enact Equality, a nonprofit organization to advance race equality, and the Race and Education Parliamentary Group, APPG for short, working towards race equality in education, Lamaya Shere. Lamaya, hello. Hi. Thanks Hi. for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. You are the first guest that works in politics. Exciting. On this podcast. <laughs> you are a policy changer. This is amazing. I mean, hopefully more to come. But yeah. yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to have a chat and yes. discuss Don't Call Me Exotic. Yes. <laughs> um, so could you just introduce yourself and a little bit about your background mm-hmm. and how you got into politics? Okay, so I mean, my name is Lamaya Sheree. Uh, I run the all-party parliamentary group for race, equality and education. I also run a company called Enact Equality, where we work with celebrities, politicians, and organizations in general to advocate for greater race equality. So that's everything in like a very, <laughs> a very quick nutshell. Um, but yeah, we do a lot of stuff to do with politics, everything from like race, homelessness, um, organizational culture, and that sort of stuff as yeah. well. Doing God's work. <laughs> but I also have to big you up because you have a master's from Cambridge. Yeah. Um, two distinctions and you got the highest grade on your course for one of your modules. That's mm-hmm. amazing. Thank Congratulations. you. Congratulations. And that was quite recently as well, wasn't it? Yeah, I always forget when it was. I think it was like two, three years ago. Yeah. I think ever since the pandemic everything's yeah. kind of gone into a blur. But um yeah, so I went I went to Cambridge um and did my master's there in international relations and politics. And then after that worked in the House of Lords uh, for around a year and a half or just over a year for uh, the founder of the Big Issue group, uh, Lord Bird, and did a lot of kind of campaigning work there and then left and set up my own company after that. Yeah, you had a couple of roles in the House of Commons, Mm -hmm. didn't you? So yeah, yeah, could you kind of tell me a little bit? This is like kind of new for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so like, I mean, I suppose from an early age, I was really interested in politics. And then after that, um, after university, I went on to work for Jeremy Corbyn in his I private office. Oh my <laughs> that God. was one of my first roles, uh, official roles in in politics. I mean, before that, I did work in the information office, like information and outreach office in Parliament. Yeah, uh, which was like around connecting students um, yeah. with politics and that sort of stuff. And that was like one of the best roles. But it was my first ever job. And then after my undergraduate degree, I went on and worked for Jeremy. Yes. <laughs> and then. <laughs> And then actually left and did my master's. Um, And then after that worked in the House of Lords. So a variety of different roles. Mm -hmm. I mean, the role for Jeremy was way more to do with party politics and Labour Party politics. And then the role in the House of Lords was more to do with like policy change and campaigning. Um, And I think in particular, the role in the Lords was really where I learned how to kind of lead Mm -hmm. myself and like, to solely lead initiatives and like policy development. And yeah. it was then that I knew like I was ready to start my own company and wow. just and just lead by myself. But yeah. I mean also, so you started working for Jeremy, like I think it was age 22 I read. Yeah, when I finished my degree. So it would have been 22, it was a four year degree. That's so, yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's cra- it was literally my first wow. like proper full time job out of uni. So it was- what was it like working working with him? Um, I mean, it was a very turbulent experience. <laughs> 
Um, obviously, I'm guessing you probably read the news and stuff at yeah. the time when he was leader. Um, but I mean, I met so many amazing people. I remember meeting the president of Ghana and just wow. like amazing leaders. And um, I'm from a Caribbean background, but I'm Pan-African and, mm. and pro-black in general. And um, meeting some of these like phenomenal leaders. I remember I met uh, Doreen Lawrence as well, Stephen Lawrence's mom. Wow. Um, and just some really amazing black leaders. Obviously, I met Diane Abbott and Diane yes. Abbott is now the chair of... Yes the APPG that I run so um, yeah exactly <laughs> and I mean there were there were some really phenomenal leaders that I met who were probably instrumental in my career Dawn Butler is another MP that was just again um, a great inspiration at the time that I was working for Jeremy so um, yeah. yeah just it was an, it's an experience that I'll never forget yeah you had said that there was a small minority of people working that looked like you how did you kind of navigate that landscape yeah at such a young age as well? I mean, I expected it. I think because from quite an early age in general, I knew that I wanted to work in politics. I just, I knew obviously it wasn't going yeah. to be the most diverse place, even in terms of age diversity yeah. and stuff like that as well. So I, I, def I definitely did expect it, but I think my first job in parliament, as I said, was in the information and outreach department. And that was literally focused on engagement. It was engaging young people and engaging students. So I think, that was kind of a great way to start a yeah. career in, in politics or in parliament more broadly, because I was around people that were like really passionate about outreach and mm -hmm. stuff like that. I was engaging with people that were my own age group. And I joined a workplace equality network in parliament and that was a race equality network. And again, that was just one of the most amazing experiences because I was surrounded by people of a variety of different ages who looked like myself yeah. and had had similar experiences. And I definitely felt protected to a certain degree as yeah. having that network and being so ingrained in there. Yeah. Wow, like to feel safe, like that is a big yeah, thing definitely. to say. Yeah. And, but that's why workplace equality networks are so important. Like I would definitely advise people to join um, theirs because I mean, I don't know how it is in other organizations, but in parliament, it definitely felt like a safe space for me yeah. without a doubt. Wow, what are your uh, thoughts about the government right now? <laughs> Can we move on? <laughs> yeah, I was like, <laughs> no comment. Um, okay, yeah, so for myself creating this podcast, yeah. it's been such a, um, like I've, I've learned so much yeah. about my relationship to my heritage mm -hmm. and I mean it hasn't been an easy experience it's been yeah. definitely moments of being uncomfortable and I'm still kind of going through it now I've also recently started therapy because I feel Amazing. like so much of like growing up so so many of my insecurities mm. and like self-confidence issues like so much of it was rooted from my relationship to my race like so much internalized racism yeah. and all of that and like obviously like with all of the projects that you're working on now, like how has that kind of changed like your journey mm. and your relationship to your heritage at all? I mean, that's such an interesting question because when I say like from an early age, I mean like from a child, yeah. I was really interested in race. I've got a very- That's, that's crazy, yeah, I love that. I think, but I'm also from the Midlands, I'm from Nottingham, yeah. I'm not from London. And Nottingham is very interesting in terms of its racial composition. Mm. And in general, just how I was brought up as well. My mum, my family in general, but my mum in particular is very protective 
in the sense of where when I was young, I knew that if someone said anything inappropriate about race or anything like that, my mum was always like, come home, tell me. Like, really? I'll go into school. Like, she, like, from an early age, I was very hot on, like, what yeah. was appropriate and what wasn't. Wow. And Boundaries set from day yeah, one. Yeah, from day one. And I think that is something that I would so encourage parents to do because yeah. I knew that when I was going into school, I was, I, again, I just, it was that feeling of, the feeling of being protected and mm. being empowered to speak out about race issues. So I remember in, I think like the first year of school, we learned, um, was that of mice and men? I think yeah. that, yeah. <laughs> and like either, either the first year of school or the second. And um, I remember there was obviously like racial slurs. Yeah. I remember the teacher just saying the racial slurs like oh openly. And we were, I think, I can't remember how old we were. We must have been like 11 or something, yeah. like super young. Yeah. And I went home and told my mom, I was like, I'm sure that that's not okay. And she went yeah. into the school the next day. And I oh think, and then after that, the school decided that they, from that, from that point on, they would no longer verbally say the racial right. slurs, like, in front of young kids. Yeah. And, like, I think from that age, I was like, okay, so clearly when I use my voice, like, positive yeah, change works, can happen. Yes. Yeah, And it was only when I've kind of done interviews in recent years that I've realized how impactful mm. those experiences were on the career that I have today, because I always felt like I could, I was always comfortable to speak out yeah. because I knew that my family were protecting me. Yeah. And that transitioned on into politics and then having like great leaders that I was surrounded by like Lord Simon Woolley, Diane Abbott is super vocal as well yeah. and people like that it inspires you on a daily basis so yeah. I think that trajectory made me really kind of interested in race but passionate to make yeah. change for, for my demographic. Wow yeah that's amazing because mm -hmm. I think when I think back at my education um, from what I can remember a lot of it you know we didn't really learn so much about the true history of what yeah. happened yeah. Uh, we'll get into that but um <laughs> but also just kind of the racism that I would face at school or even mm -hmm. like in general life and I think kind of not acknowledging that that's happening and that's there almost made it difficult for me as a kid growing up to consolidate like what I'm being taught as like what yeah. is the world and like what's actually happening yeah. so yeah it's a difficult job for parents I think in particular when is the right age to speak to your children about like racism and racial issues? Yeah. You don't want them to grow up thinking that they're different or thinking that that's going to happen. Yeah. But at the same time, no, like ensuring that your children are equipped mm. to um, not even to just challenge these things, but then to make sure that they move forward, knowing that they're still beautiful, yeah. that they're still equal to others and that they're yeah. not lesser than as a result of the color of their skin or their heritage yeah. is so important. So it's, it's trying to use a positive narrative to ingrain that in your children, but to also for them to understand that these issues are not their fault. It's not a yes. fault of their own. Do you oh know what I God. mean? But it's a, it's a tricky conversation to have. And that's why I think it's so important for schools to become anti-racist. Like this needs to yes. be embedded in our education system. I don't yeah. think the onus should just be on parents because especially parents of colour, they have a lot of other stuff yeah, that they probably exactly. have to deal with in their own day-to-day -day lives not to even just get too much into it, but I mean, obviously parents of colour tend to be, tend to earn less for the exact same roles as their white counterparts, a more difficult time in educational experiences, again, growing up, healthcare, housing, all of those other structural racism type issues that happen in society. And then to also have to think about how to equip your children against yeah. racism. It's like an ongoing issue. Yeah. And these are extra issues that, that, that people should not have to face. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? So that's why I feel like, there is an onus on our institutions to do more to eradicate this issue so that everyone yeah. can just focus on their day-to-day -day lives. Exactly. Yeah. Because I think just even, like, what language do you use? What's appropriate exactly. to speak to children of, oh, I don't know. Like, yeah. I don't even remember being 20, let alone 
eight yeah. or do you know what I mean? So that's, mm. oh, but, um, at the end of last year, you were published in politics, home and house <laughs> magazine, which you had noted that they only publish articles written by political leaders. So mm. congratulations. Thank that's you. amazing. Thanks. Um, so in that you wrote about the importance of making black history, a mandatory part of the national curriculum, mm. working towards that. What are the big roadblocks that you've, that you've faced? So the thing is, with making black history a compulsory part of the curriculum, uh, the majority of people on the ground support that. I mean, the research, yeah. has, the research has been shown. Um, I think it was also shown that, uh, was it 25%? I think it was one in four teachers expressed that they didn't know how to teach their children a thorough understanding of black history. So I mean, yeah. that's a quarter of teachers. Yeah. So it's these kinds of issues. I think it was also something like over 70% of people believe that black history should be a compulsory part of the curriculum. Yeah. So it is a general kind of consensus there, right, yeah. on the ground. You're also not taking anything away from, yeah. from children by giving them a thorough understanding <laughs> but of But the whole history. point of education is learning about... Yeah, and it's not even... I think it's. I think it goes beyond black history. It's more so just increasing racial diversity across the curriculum. Mm. That's what our aim is to do, is to make sure that people of colour are represented across math, science, yeah. chemistry. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Performing arts, arts, arts yeah. um, classes in general. When you learn about the great historians or the great people in sports or the great people that um, were artists or scientists and so on, like we need to also learn about the people that the people of colour who mm. paved the way. Oh my God, that's so true. You just yeah. don't, you don't get so I that think at all. It goes beyond black history. It really is just about increasing racial diversity across every single subject in the yeah. curriculum. And the main roadblock is political will, unfortunately, mm. because the power is in the hands of government ministers to make this change. And that really is the only issue that I've seen is that yeah. it, it takes the government minister to make this change in education policy because the will is already there on the ground. We've done the petition. Yeah. We've had the debates in parliament. It, it now is the responsibility of the government what to make we, that change. What do we do? Well, I mean, Wales, <laughs> Wales is doing it this year. So it's yes, just, yeah, yeah Scotland that. is taking steps to diversify well. their curriculum as well. Like England. Yeah. <laughs> England, what are we doing? Like England. it's time for us to also step forward. Yeah. Oh my days. Yeah, I saw that about Wales and I thought that was amazing. Yeah, this, but yeah. It, it's amazing and I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but like, it's 2022. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's taken way too long. <laughs> Do you know, then... like, I think also when I, I don't even remember learning anything about East Asia. Like yeah, you, and that's what that's did, why I'm saying it's about like racial diversity in general. Like we really need, we need to look at our history curriculum in general and look yeah. at like the, all of the types of histories that are just not represented yeah. at all. Like children are not learning this. We're not gaining a thorough understanding of education mm. in our current curriculum and that needs to change so i grew up in canada and canada's very young the history i think yeah. it only turned like 150 oh, wow. like a couple of years ago and i remember there was one that was about uh we had like chinese history and mm. i just remember studying for that was so hard because china has a big history but <laughs> yeah i do like i can't even think about i was born in south korea like i don't know from school i didn't really learn anything which is yeah sad but um but so did you go to school in south korea or yeah? um so i moved to canada when i was six right okay and then uh moved here when i was 18 so oh wow so you didn't yeah. you didn't do secondary school or primary school here at all no okay so this is all like new to yeah, the things i was saying no, but this is so interesting but yeah also like i don't understand the whole school system yeah here. yeah i can imagine um 
but uh, I wanted to speak to you about the all-party parliamentary group, yeah. APBG, yeah. Uh, <laughs> for Race Equality in Education, and it's chaired yeah. by Diane Abbott. Mm-hmm. Um, so you founded this. Yeah. Um, what inspired you to found the APPG? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, can you also explain what all-party parliamentary group can do? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It's so funny because I feel like people, not a lot of people know about APPGs at all. And to yeah. be honest, I mean, I feel, I feel like when you're in parliament, you know what an APPG yeah. is. External to parliament, you don't really know what it I is. I mean, did you just hear me? Yeah, trying? exactly. No, it's the same thing. I mean, my friends and family, it's the exact same thing. Yeah. So don't worry. But... um. They're basically groups of politicians. They're cross-party groups of politicians <laughs> that that join together to campaign on certain issues so they can run campaigns, publish research papers, yeah. write letters to government ministers and to editors, hold events, host private roundtable meetings, all of that sort of stuff. So it's kind of like mini entities in parliament yeah. that can basically yeah, run campaigns and make change, right? And what is particularly powerful about APPGs is the fact that they're cross-party. So... In order to set one up, you need a particular number of members from the Conservative Party and the Labour Party um, and a particular number of MPs. So we're completely cross-party. We have nine politicians in total. And uh, the reason why I founded it is because I set up my own company, Enacti Quality. And through that, we were working with politicians and celebrities and organisations. And as we were working with more politicians, they were saying, well, why not just set up an APPJ so that you have a cohesive network inside Parliament a number of designated politicians that you can basically call on yeah. to help you run these campaigns. And then that's oh my God. that's what we did. And the APPG literally just took off like yeah. as soon as we launched it. I think it was because also the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities had their report at a similar yeah. time. I'm not sure if you heard about the controversies around that. But there was a massive controversy around education in the report because they labelled education as the single most emphatic success story of the British ethnic minority experience. What? And we had literally just like set up the APPG maybe like a few weeks or a month before then, oh or a couple God. months before then. So um, yeah, it just it just showed the need for the APPG to say, "Oh my God, the actually, audacity. there's a lot more work that oh needs God. to be done." That's to, so arrogant yeah, to, to say make education that. Uh, better for children of colour. So yeah, I actually can't believe that. That's so rude. <laughs> And I mean, there's there's been loads of stuff since we've launched. I mean, there's been the stuff around exclusions. I'm not sure if you saw about the issues around Pimlico Academy. And yeah, there's just been a million different issues around education since we've launched, which means that the APPG has kind of gone from strength to strength to kind of tackle these issues and to try and be a voice for change in that area. Yeah. Is the Pimlico school that the thing you're talking about, is that with the hair discrimination yeah exactly is that yeah what and and yeah uniform uniform policies and that sort of they went out and protested yeah oh my god yeah can you kind of give us a bit more information on because you, you guys launched a campaign yeah so we launched a campaign to tackle afro hair discrimination yeah. where we joined forces with like a variety of well-known brands like pantene mm. dove emma deberry signed the letter glamour magazine the halo collective mm. and so on there are a long list of names and it was basically to ask the Equality and Human Rights Commission to do more to tackle uh, Afro hair discrimination. And as a result of the launch of the campaign, we, well, when we launched the campaign, we wrote a letter to the EHRC and we referenced uh, a particular school that had been in the news for having controversial policies around Afro hair. 
And since launching the campaign, two days afterwards, they sent a revised version of their uniform policy to parents and they removed all of the clauses that people perceived as being discriminatory against Afro hair. So that was clauses like um, banning braids. They had banned braids before. They'd banned hair products. What hair products? Yeah, like it's yeah. They banned hair gel. They banned beads in hair. Now they allow two beads per braid. Also, that's so specific. Hair, why, I mean, hair why products. Two? Yeah, I don't know. It's like three's offensive. I don't, offensive. I don't like, even know how what? you'd even be able to tell if someone had a hair product in their hair. Like if if you put hair oil in your hair, I mean. But anyway, why does so any was, of this exist anyway? Yeah, there was all of that, and they removed all the clauses now. So I right. mean, again, it was. It was a small win, but like a massive win at the same time because yeah. it was like, okay, like hopefully other schools will follow suit yeah. and reform their uniform policies. Um, but since then, we've met with the chief executive of the Equality and Human Rights Commission and we're now going to be working with them to strengthen national guidance oh against Afro-Hair discrimination, which yes. is super exciting. That's so exciting. Because um, we've only been launched for one year and I mean, that oh was like, God. that was right at the end of the year and we're just like, okay, that's, <laughs> oh we're really God. happy because it culminated in that. So yeah. Because I did see there was a report that you were on ITV News for and it, it was, was that. Yeah. yeah, it was that and just even a five-year-old boy. That's being, the school that we're talking about. Yeah. Like, <laughs> they were, he was told, well, I guess his parents were told that his skin fade was too short. Yeah, exactly. It was that school and that school had, like, had banned skin fades before. But like I said, they removed all of those policies now. So it's it's bittersweet. I mean, it's so heartbreaking that children had to even go through that. Yeah. But I'm so happy that now the next children that will be going to that yeah. school w- won't have to go through those same things because now the policies have all been removed. Yeah. And what we really want to see the Equality and Human Rights Commission do is have a list of policies that clearly explain that people can use as an example sorry to reference the fact that these policies are discriminatory against afro hair and people of african and caribbean descent yeah like we want to see clear examples so that schools know that these policies are not okay yeah they're unlawful and they go against the equality act of 2010 it's crazy because you know after you guys launched that campaign two days you said yeah two days so it's like version. if you want to do it you can do it that's the thing oh. yeah but i mean like i said we're just really hopeful that other schools will follow suit there, there was a Glamour article that, just to give some statistics, mm-hmm. there was a research done by Dove that revealed 37% of black adults have faced hair discrimination at work. 25% of black adults have been sent home from work or faced disciplinary action say, yeah. as a result of wearing their hair in a natural protected style. And 58% of black adults in the UK say that that hair discrimination has impacted their ability to advance at work. Those statistics, and it's also the fact that children will literally go to school with an afro and get sent home, and it's just like, how? Like, the message that you're sending across to people is that, like, you, as your Mm. natural state, is punishable. Exactly. Um, And and what I think is heartbreaking is that parents will go through that as children, become adults, and then they'll see their children go through the same thing. And that is, it's this continuous cycle that has to be broken yeah and the organizations that are responsible for enforcing the equality act must take accountability and do yeah. more and that's why we wrote to the ehrc because the equality act is there for a reason do you yeah. know what i mean and the politicians answers are usually i mean the equality act is already there etc etc so that's why it's so important to look at how these pieces of legislation are actually being enforced yeah but some positive things that have come out also like you said they they feel like little wins but wins like any win I'll take yeah. but as of July 2021 hairdressers are to learn now how to cut and style afro and textured hair as standard mm. which is crazy that is i feel like with all of these things it's like it's great that 
they're happening but it's crazy that has to happen like yeah the yeah. fact that they have to learn how to do all kinds of hair mm-hmm. and I kind of feel that as well with like makeup artists I've always felt uncomfortable going to like a shoot or something and then them not knowing what to do with like my Asian yeah. features and stuff and I think that problem in particular is a massive one is like in the beauty industry in particular like going for shoots or for films or for anything that's yeah. to do with like the creative industry and not having um people that are trained to do your skin tone or your hair type and so on i think in terms of like hairdressing and hairdressers that like, i'm always going to encourage people to spend in black businesses yeah. so i mean i think it is really important that obviously all hairdressers and salons know how to train and cut yeah. black hair however <laughs> Try and support black businesses. I mean, there's loads yes, of black yes. hair. There's not loads of black hair salons, yeah. but I mean, come on, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I would always obviously encourage that. That <laughs> I agree that in the creative industry, when you're on set for anything or you're doing anything like that, yeah, that there, there needs to be a range of people that are trained to do different skin types. Yeah. And also there's an onus on the creative industry to hire more I black know. makeup artists or more makeup artists of color yeah. and people that are underrepresented yeah. and that are trained and that clearly already have the skills. I mean, I know we're going to go on to diversity hires yeah. later on anyway, <laughs> but it's, that, that is literally like such a point of mine is that I don't like it when people kind of, well, I mean, I suppose I understand the, kind of frustrations around why people think that at times this whole notion of making your employee workforce more diverse can be problematic because it can mean that people don't feel like they got the job because they were qualified it's because they're diverse or whatever but I'm I just think the notion of that is ridiculous because at the end of the day there are a vast range of people in communities of color that are more than qualified to get these jobs and statistics already show that if you are white you're more likely to get a job than someone of colour that has the exact same qualifications yeah. as you and likely to earn more. So, I mean, the notion that someone is just kind of just getting hired because yeah. they're underrepresented. I mean, how often do you really see that happen? Yeah. I mean, do you know what I mean? It's so rare. So I think that the focus should be on hiring people that are qualified and underrepresented and then both parties reaping the rewards of that. It's rewarding for the organisation to yeah. have a racially diverse workforce for a variety of reasons that I don't even need to list. Yeah. And it's rewarding, obviously, for the person because we all need to get that money. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I think that it's just extremely important for all organisations to do way more to hire um, a racially diverse workforce. There's been an occasion, actually, once that I can think of um, that sticks out to me, where an organisation that was not racially diverse asked me to do something for them where I'd basically be on like the front cover and they didn't, they didn't, number one, their organisation wasn't racially diverse and number two, they didn't do anything to help progress black members of staff into senior levels, into senior positions. So I just said no, like, and the thing is, is that I I genuinely value when organisations make an active attempt to look more racially diverse, to attract black talent. Right. I think that is a good thing. I don't think it's a negative thing, but you have to also back it up behind the scenes. Mm. So I'd only do anything like that if behind the scenes they're also looking at their uh, the racial yeah. diversity. Like they're doing workforce. the work. Yeah, they're doing yeah. the work. Like you can't just uh, try and attract black, black talent into an organisation mm. that doesn't even acknowledge their own bias. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like you have to be transparent. So that's why I feel like if companies are doing things like all female dj lineups or whatever but then behind the scenes they also do great pay for for women and they look at women's progression and they look at how to do all these other parts and strategies that are advantageous towards women's progression yeah then i don't think that's problematic yeah. i think it's problematic when 
it's disingenuous if that makes sense i've once been asked to dj and just play asian music and also wear like a dragon there you go (laughs) this is exactly what i'm saying you do realize this is very offensive Mm -hmm. and then yeah the booker was just like yeah but can you like do it anyway and i was just like absolutely not like the thought of being in that moment i was like it actually makes me feel physically ill like please don't talk to me (laughs) (laughs) i mean i think this is the thing i feel like also like companies will do these things and won't have the right people behind the scenes making the decision as well so it just becomes more problematic like and that's why you need to have people from racially diverse backgrounds in decision making meetings and in positions of power because again if not it just doesn't come across as genuine yeah and it just ends up being problematic as well so you have to yeah like look at every aspect of your company without a doubt we need to have perspective different perspectives in every level of business education Mm. like everything like that's just yeah i guess that's the answer i mean how many times have we seen like an advert on tv or we've seen like some sort of campaign and we, that, that's being like targeted at people of color and be like who who created that and it's literally because the people yeah, that were making it's not the made by yeah. yeah and not it's not made by us and that is a lot of the time when it becomes problematic without a doubt yeah yeah at the end of last year i saw that you hosted a private round table it was with Twitter, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, with Twitter UK. Um, and that was to tackle the problem of racism online. Mm-hmm. And that included politicians from the House of Commons, House of Lords, senior leaders from Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, mm-hmm. the big three. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also included experts from tech, education, and race qual- equality organizations. Can you tell me a bit about how that talk came about? And also, do you think the big social media companies are doing enough? Well, the, to answer the latter question, no, they definitely aren't doing enough. <laughs> yeah. um, but it came about because one of my colleagues knows um, a senior representative at Twitter. They were in conversation and they were saying, well, why not? Why don't we host kind of a collab event and incorporate members of the House of Commons and the House of Lords to incorporate politicians, but then also to get organisations that are specialists in race equality and in tech to join as well. And then to also reach out to Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, And it was a really kind of unique roundtable discussion because not a lot of the time we see like leaders in race and equality and also like the tech giants around the same table Um, but it was really really good super positive and going forward actually what we're going to do is we're going to expand the APBG for a first um, and we're also going to now offer uh, one-to-one training sessions for politicians with Twitter, Instagram, TikTok and Facebook, yeah. which is super exciting because the online safety bill is currently making its way through the Houses of Parliament. Okay. And what we're finding is that politicians aren't necessarily 1000% equipped to legislate about, in my opinion anyway, <laughs> to legislate about tech because tech is so, it's changing so yeah. quickly. I mean, even for like our generation, it's super quick. Mm. And what we want to do is to create a closer relationship between politicians and mm the tech giants to look at how we can utilize our legal system to protect children and students online, but more broadly to protect people from online racial abuse. Um, So that's what we're doing as as the first step at the moment. But as I said, the online safety bill is currently making its way through parliament. Obviously we're a policy organization, a political and policy organization. So we're gonna be looking at the work from a policy perspective. So our focus will be on what politicians can do. We can try and push the social media companies to do more. I mean, Mm. 
if you look at Instagram with the COVID-19 stuff and that, oh yeah, exactly. God. I know everyone Hot uses that. As, everyone uses that as reference. And oh. I definitely use it as reference as well because the question begs, begs <laughs> like, when you see things about racial abuse, can you, it cannot be the same thing, like with certain trigger words. Yeah. But yeah, all we can do is push the tech giants to to do more as well but our focus will obviously be on the on the policy aspect yeah i mean you can't post anything you like it comes up straight away yeah watching (laughs) they're so on it um well i did want to kind of round out the podcast with one of your quotes i thought it was really powerful so i therefore call on african and caribbean communities to continuously remember that our diversity is an important essential and valuable asset do you remember this? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like me. It sounds like <laughs> something that I say. Um, it is imperative that we reflect and represent the change that we want to see in the world. And our choices should be a clear manifestation of our hopes and dreams. Nothing less and nothing more. We should never be deterred by potential barriers, nor should we allow racial inequalities to dictate our futures. Yes, it always seems impossible until it's done. But after all, instances are there to be beaten. I can't believe I even wrote that. That's it's quite so happy. Are you proud? Yeah. You should be that's proud. Really, it's so nice. Do you know what? I haven't written an article for like a couple of months. So like, yeah. yeah um, I feel it's like, so hopeful. You know what? I'm going to go home and write another article. Yeah. Now. I'm glad. Oh my God. I'm glad. No, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah. Um, no, I thought it was really powerful. No, but do you know what? I think it's, that there is just so important. And I think that a lot of the time we, we shoulder the burden of race, of mm. race inequality, which obviously we do because we're people of colour, right? Yeah. And and it negatively affects us. But that's why I think it's so important for allies to do more. And I really don't mean just like reading certain mm. books or like signing petitions is also super important. But I really mean do the work in terms of having those uncomfortable conversations with like friends and yeah. family members. Go, like when you go to work, is your is your team diverse? Are there people of colour in your team? When you go into meetings, are the people of colour there? What are what are the advertising materials like for your workplace? Like, are they including people of colour when they advertise? Um, on hiring panels, mm. like, is there is there a woman there? Are there any people of colour on the hiring panels as well? When you hear racially inappropriate jokes, don't just like look at your black colleague mm. or your colleague of colour and like see their reaction. Like, no, call yeah. it out. I'll never forget the time when I was in Cambridge. And someone said something that was racially inappropriate. And before I even opened my mouth, my friend just stepped in straight away and just wow. like completely schooled the person on why it was inappropriate. Yeah. And it's moments like that that it's just like, it really just like makes you just relax because it's mm. like, okay, like you've got this. And I mean, there was quite a few instances in Cambridge, to be fair, that happened that were like that. I mean, I remember one of my lecturers as well. Um, there was quite a few times that I'd call things out during that module in particular. And it got to a stage where he was then like learning from me and understanding when to pull things out. So then he started doing it and I wouldn't have to do it anymore. And it's like, it shouldn't take someone to be vocal for you to do that. But I'm happy that people use their initiative, learn from it and then start doing it because it does take the onus of us. And what is the word? Basically gaining fatigue as a result of constantly calling out racism is something that a lot of us go through. Mm. So I do think it's important for allies to do the work beyond reading, but to actually call things out when they see it. But then also for people of colour and um, speaking as a black woman in particular, for us to focus on black joy is also super important and Mm. to just like celebrate race and to celebrate our history and our diversity and to understand that it truly is a strength. Like to, um, 
be in your role or to be in your job or to be where you are or to be with your family and be happy and healthy despite all of the other structural barriers yeah. that we go through on a daily yeah. like to have a roof over your head and yeah. a healthy bank account like you're doing well and you're killing it so I think it's so important to also celebrate yourself <laughs> give yourself a pat on the back and realize yeah. that being um, like I said being diverse and having an amazing rich history is a strength it's not a weakness or yeah of course mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when I go, when I'm like recording these podcasts and like looking up everyone and doing my research and stuff, there are days where I do get that fatigue, where I'm just like constantly reading about it, constantly talking about it and like thinking about, you know, how I want the conversation to go. And then sometimes I'm like, I just want to get the fuck drunk and listen to music (laughs) and just like zone out because it's a lot. And I think a lot of the time, like we do, like you said, need to take that time to just be us and not think about how hard it can be for us and just celebrate like with each other um how awesome we are (laughs) yeah and just to say by the way so recently I've been posting like um stuff on my Instagram around just to basically help the community for example like stuff around stuff and search I'm going to do one today around um like finding out whether you're being paid equally at work and stuff like that and I thought like a lot of these things are negative to a certain degree it's like this it's the barriers that we go through but then also how to surpass them mm. but then i was looking online like hmm, what are some of the positive stats around yeah. like minority communities um like what what are some of the stuff that we're going through that's positive like are there wins that we're doing yeah. statistically and i really couldn't find hardly any oh research that was like saying that i don't know like i, I would have thought at least there'd be research like especially with black communities and startups for example yeah. like i know that in the u.s i think was it, I think it was something like black women startups grow at a rate of five times the average woman startups in the U, in the oh. US or something like that. There was a, a statistic out there. And I was like, okay, is that replicated in the UK? Like, no. And it's just like, I'm not sure whether it's a lack of research or whether the barriers are just so ingrained and entrenched in mm. the UK that communities of colour are finding it substantially more difficult to surpass these issues but right. like there definitely needs to be more research done because i want to use positive mm. st- stats as well i want to see what we're doing that's yeah. like phenomenal statistically like yeah. on average so to be fair i do think it's a lack of research that I, I definitely think without a doubt in terms of like social media and like new startups yeah. i think that things are changing mm. and i just hope that the research and the, the statistics back it up like later on down the line yeah hopefully and it reflects the definitely reality. yeah yeah you're super inspiring thank like, who you who inspires you um i've got to like without a doubt my family i know that it's just like a typical thing that everyone says yeah. but my mom in particular this has just been like a phenomenal figure in my life like until this day and she's just my complete rock and she's just so like motivating all the time so like i definitely work harder because like one day I want to just provide for my entire family. I mean, they're, yeah. they're, I'm from a working class background, but they're they're doing well financially now. Um, so I don't really need to provide for them, but I really want mm. to just to kind of give back. And I feel like that is also a thing that a lot of my um, black friends and other family members aspire to do, or maybe yeah. just communities of color in general, but you aspire totally, to take care of your family, yes. right? Even if they don't even need it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, it's like you want to shoulder that. I totally so, feel that. Okay, good, I'm glad. <laughs> I, feel like every, but like, I feel like everyone yeah, feels that pressure absolutely. on it. I'm not sure whether it is just like, a thing particularly from people from black and asian backgrounds but yeah i think a lot of us feel that so there's definitely that and i think also just like political leaders that have been super instrumental in my career for example simon woolley who is now a lord and founder of operation black boat phenomenal inspiration 
also Diane Abbott's strength yeah. in particular, just the continuous strength that she has and how she sticks to her guns with core issues around supporting black communities, I think is super inspirational. Um, and I've witnessed that firsthand through the APPG. Um, Dawn Butler as well, MP, she's super authentic in how she moves. Again, that's um, her work is very inspirational. So I think a lot of political leaders, but to my core, it would always be my family without Aww. a doubt, definitely. Oh, that's <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the no podcast. No worries, thanks for having me. I've had a great time. It's so been thank amazing. You. Um, please, can you drop your socials so people can check you out? Yeah, so um, on Instagram, my handle is Lamaya underscore Sheree. I can spell it. Um, <laughs> it's L-M-Y-A-H underscore S-H-E-R-A-E. And then Twitter, I think it's Maya underscore Sheree because um, I tried to change it to Lamaya but apparently you lose your verification thing if you change oh, it oh no <laughs> like, you gotta keep that <laughs> it's not working no but um, yeah so it's basically my first and second name you know name. people at Twitter now <laughs> let them yeah, know yeah I need to actually ask them to be honest to see if they can switch that up but um, yeah. yeah great thank you so much thank you for having me thanks thank you so much for listening and thank you to Lamaya I'll be back next week so make sure you subscribe follow and rate the show to keep posted on new episodes you can also get in touch with me at Don't Call Me Exotic Pod and at OANEO on Instagram. You can also send me an email at Don't Call Me Exotic Pod at gmail.com. Oh, and make sure you don't call people exotic. Bye.